0: Pixar's Up was released in 2009, and since then has become a cult classic in the animation genre. We are joined today by Popcorn Psychology. It's a podcast that combines mental health and movies hosted by three licensed therapists, Brittany Brownfield, Hannah Espinoza, and Ben Stover. Let's get into our episode, Breaking Down Up. Welcome to today's crossover episode of Raiders of the Lost podcast and Popcorn Psychology Breaking Down Pixar's Up. Thanks so much for doing this crossover with us, Popcorn Psychology. We're so excited that you've joined us and we can't wait to talk about it. How are you all doing?
1: We're doing great. Hi, this voice is Brittany. I'm Ben. Hi, my name is Hannah.
0: Welcome to our show, everyone. And we love Pixar up is one of their greatest achievements i think narratively and with animation when it was getting really advanced but they also were tackling very intense themes very mature themes for children to take on when they watched the film i thought they did a beautiful job and in terms of like the writing and storytelling the first act of up could be the best thing pixar has ever done in -hmm. terms of narrative fiction i think it's really wonderful and then tackling mental health themes so beautifully and with so much nuance i think this is a special movie and every child should watch this as they're growing up and i would love for our audience to find out where they can find your show popcorn psychology give a little background on what it's about and we can do the same thing for your listeners that are tuned in for our show as well
1: sure so Popcorn Psychology, we we are on, this is our sixth season, I believe. We are all licensed clinical professional counselors, also known as mental health therapists. And every episode of our podcast, we pick a movie like Up and we talk about the themes of mental health we see in that movie. Um, You can find us anywhere on social media on Popcorn Psychology, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok. On Twitter, you can find us at popcorn underscore psych. And we're on pretty much every um big podcast app wherever you find podcasts you can find us and where can our listeners find you all
0: likewise we're very easy to find raiders of the lost podcast on every platform we do about four to six episodes every week about new and old releases of cinema and film tv as well we talk a lot about movie news as well so we're super easy to find TikTok, instagram twitter just search Raiders of the Lost Podcast, so easy to find, or our website, raidersofthelostpodcast.com. And we're two and a half years into our podcasting journey. It's been so fun to connect with so many movie lovers and cinephiles around the world and finally making this connection. Very excited to be here with you all. So thanks again for joining mm-hmm. us on this crossover episode of Raiders of the Lost Podcast <laughs> and Popcorn Psychology. Now let's get into Up, which came out in 2009. IMDb, this is at an 83 With Mm. 1.1 million ratings, that's absurd. And that puts it at number 111 on the all-time IMDb user rating list. It's very loved. Clearly, Rotten Tomatoes' critic score is a 98%. I don't know who would give this a rotten review. I don't know. 90% audience score. It won two Academy Awards off five nominations. It won Best Music for Michael Giacchino and Best Animated Feature for Pete Docter, who was one of the co-directors of the film, on a budget of $175 million dollars. Up was a massive success at the box office, making a total global box office of $735 million. Goodness gracious. And it follows 78, 78 year old Carl Fredrickson, who, after the passing of his wife Ellie, reluctantly goes on a journey to the location of their mutual lifelong dream adventure, Paradise Falls, in a floating house held up by balloons, directed by Pete Doctor, Bob Peterson. Written by Pete Dr. Rob Peterson and Tom McCarthy. And Up was really important, I think, for Pixar in its future because it was relying, obviously, on Toy Story, on cars, mm-hmm. uh, something like The Incredibles, uh, Bugs Life. So kind of the fantastical. And so Ratatouille as well, you know, a, a rat that can cook. A little fantastical. <laughs> and so uh, Up Just was a, a really... Yeah, it was, it's a really important step in Pixar's future in terms of storytelling to relate to uh, all audiences and to relate to human beings and telling truly human stories and that's why i think it's so special in pixar's filmography because after this they could basically make a film about anything it didn't have to be talking animals it didn't have to be talking inanimate objects it could be just about human beings so i think that was really important for them although there are talking animals in this movie there are, yes. via technology <laughs> what do the three of you think about up as a film <sighs>
1: Well, I remember I did write in my notes that this in the intro is perfect storytelling, like you said earlier, like such a perfect way to succinctly tell a lifetime with almost no dialogue. Really, the montage is like I think dialogue less pretty much, and so, and I also remember watching it. This is only the second time I'd watch it actually, and when I watched it the first time, that intro was such like a gut punch in terms of a kids a quote unquote kids movie. Being so grown up in certain ways, like talking about infertility and cancer and death, and for all that to be in like the first 15 minutes of a child's movie. I remember when I watched it, I think I was with my mom and my brother, and we all looked at my brother, I think, because he's the one who wanted to watch it. We were like, what the hell is this, dude? Like, we're supposed to watch like a fun movie and we're all weeping on the couch right now. With the cool
2: whip?
3: Yeah, I think this movie is fantastic. I think the storytelling is just absolute perfection. And it did open them up to be able to tell any story they want, which they went on and did with Soul. And some of the other things that they've done where they address some pretty deep topics. And I think this movie did pave the way for them to do it. It is profoundly human storytelling. I think it's Targeted at an elder audience than they usually do, because I watched it last night with my five-year-old, and I think a lot of it was over her head, but even still enough, she asked some of the right questions because of this movie, and mm. was able to grasp the concepts of someone being sad because someone is gone, and that they're life-changing when they're old, and also, uh, meeting your heroes might not be as advertised And I think that's an important lesson to learn at any point in time, but also watching just the colors and the animation grab her attention, even if she wasn't the most enthused this is maybe with Frozen or something else that she might have (laughs) been the right demograph for, but she still gravitated to this and enjoyed watching it. And I did too.
2: Um, I love this movie. I've watched it probably a hundred times, I would guess. (laughs) Um, I feel like every time I watch it, I listen to the music a bunch afterwards because I really love the music that goes along with the film. Um, I think it's a really beautiful story that's told in such a different way and such an interesting connection to have between an older generation and a younger generation that we don't normally see in, in stuff like this. Um, and so, yeah, so I really enjoy this film. I think there's so many different important thoughts and feelings that are brought up and the way that they, and even if they're not always directly talked about, you still get to really experience them with this in this film. And so I think that that's really fun, but I love this movie. I laugh and smile and cry in all the same spots I did the first time that I watched it. And yeah, I'm really excited to talk about it today.
0: Yeah, and the animation in general, just to go on the production for a little bit, is just spectacular. Still holds up, I think, as one of the best that Pixar's ever done. I was watching it for the first time in years, and I'm just the things like the reflections in the window, the hair of young mm-hmm. Ellie poofing out and falling back down, it still holds up compared to, like I would say, their last three features that Pixar has come out with. And there's so many cool mm-hmm. facts, like... All the characters are based upon circles and rectangles, except for the villains who are triangles. Not only are Carl and Ellie based on squares and circles, but objects around them are also based on shapes like their chairs and picture frames. When they both appear in a photograph, the frame is both circle and square. And I just think that when Pete Docter, he's one of Pixar's best filmmakers and directors, he's done Monsters, Inc., he's done Up, Inside Out, Soul. He really connects you... Animation wise, as well as the story, to the audience, to the story so well. And I think he's just operating on so many different types of storytelling to intrigue people subconsciously, whether they see it or not like seeing that everyone's based on a shape, whether they're a hero, a protagonist, or a villain. I think that you know, animation is just the ultimate form of artistic imagination when it comes to storytelling. And I think Pete Docter knows how to connect to an audience. Yeah, and in terms of the storytelling, Pixar has always done a wonderful job of relating themes beautifully and weaving them into their narratives. And oftentimes, like I said, in the early days of Pixar, there are pretty simple themes, more themes that were more related, relatable for children, um movies like pixar's toy story and the incredibles uh they definitely touched those themes really well but in terms of this the, the themes of this film tackling mental health tackling grief and depression tackling intense loneliness uh losing a loved one uh, it was really complex and very mature for the young demographic that they usually hit with their audi- with their audience and so uh, it was a challenge i think But peak doctor being such an experienced pro um fighting nemo is another great one excellent themes Mm -hmm. about family but this is uh, darker themes you know you you see life and you see the you see the the formation of life and the beautiful aspects to a a love in a relationship and creating a partnership with another human being but then losing that human being and then uh this person is left with nothing that's a very complex thing for children to to take in when they watch a movie with talking dogs and yet uh pete doctor and the pixar crew and team did a, a wonderful job tackling these complex themes in a way for kids to be able to digest it understand it and even learn from it in a lot of ways
1: yeah i think it's interesting just in the beginning montage like we discussed earlier that so many of these kind of movies like Disney Pixar-esque movies, like well animated movies, if you think back on like Disney princess movies, is this once you find true love or whatever that everything will work out. So I think what is really interesting and probably pretty hard for like a little kid to wrap their head around, so it might be more of an older kid or older person, is in this movie we see two people who pretty much meet their soulmates, like their perfect person when they're teeny tiny. And mm-hmm. that does not mean that they get everything that they wanted. That it's just happily ever after. It is kind of he- it is really heavy to watch these two people not get the two biggest things they really wanted for themselves, which is to have a child or have many children, and to go on this big adventure to this place they've always wanted to go. And it it does make me think what was going on in the animators or the storytellers, the writers, the director's mind to keep showing that they would get this money saved up and then something would happen, such a real life thing, get in a car accident, break your leg, whatever, your roof needs repaired. And then you have to spend the money you've saved up. I think that idea that you can be a quote unquote good person, you can be with the love of your life and life is still going to happen to you and you don't always get the things on paper that you thought you always wanted and that's such an interesting message to deliver up top right up top for a kid's movie
0: i definitely agree and well i think that connects Brittany to one of the main themes of the film that i love is an adventure and mm-hmm. a journey and you know ellie and Carl, their their life, their their life dreams mutual. This adventure to go to Paradise Falls. But I think also at the same time, what the film is showing is a partnership or someone to spend your life with or a relationship is just as much of an adventure as going to the most fantastical place in the world where your hero Charles Muntz went to discover this supposed giant creature that he supposedly made up and to be an adventurer and to explore. I think that in a A relationship can be as much of an adventure as the most fantastical thing you can imagine. I think that's important to connect, that you don't have to do the the most grand thing in the world to live a fulfilled Mm -hmm. life. As long as you find someone who makes you happy and you make them happy. That's a great point, because when Carl does make it to Paradise Falls and he has the house there, he's not even close to satisfied. And then he realized he was chasing uh, a a futile dream that wasn't going to fulfill him. He already did find fulfillment, and he lost that. But now it's time to search for it again in other human beings Mm
1: -hmm. which
3: was beautifully indicated in the little note that ellie wrote him in her book that said thanks for the adventure now go find another one Mm -hmm. i just got goosebumps
1: (laughs) (laughs) well a lot of our recent episodes we've talked about meaning making and yeah, just how to find meaning in your life. Like we opened this season with everything everywhere all at once. And so that was a big theme when we talked about that movie. And I think what you guys are touching upon is that idea of what brings meaning to our life. And what you saw, what we saw Ellie and Carl do is when they realized they couldn't have children, is they switch that meaning to this idea of Paradise Falls. Like we will find something else to get us through this or to like give us meaning within our life. And then that didn't happen because of all the other stuff going on in life and Ellie trying to switch that meaning for Carl of like what an adventure means as she's moving on. And then we see Carl, I mean, that's kind of the course of this movie is Carl finding his meaning again. Like what is his sense of purpose now that his biggest sense of purpose, his wife is gone. And that's really hard to do. And as we've talked about in our recent episodes, sometimes that's all the work we do with clients is how do you find purpose for yourself? And how do you find something that feels meaningful when there are so many circumstances in your life that are either out of your control or that feel like they're out of your control? Um, and when those things that are out of your control feel so closely tied to the things that you want, like having children, going on going on what we would in the dictionary kind of put as an adventure, and then what, and, and then what do we do with that? Which is the course of like Carl's journey on the movie.
0: Carl's journey, it really has two paths, and they're reflected and mirrored by two characters, to keep going off that. So, Carl and Charles are a reflection of each other, and then also Carl and Russell are reflections of each other. And both Russell and Charles represent paths that Carl can take after he's lost Ellie. Russell is this young kid who's very excited and wants to be an explorer. He's just trying to get that one-help-the-elderly patch for his his Boy Scouts troop to become the ultimate cub scout or whatever he has to be and it's exactly like what carl was like when he was a little kid as well before he met ellie he was so excited he was very nervous and shy but he was excited about adventure and he has those goggles he's obsessed with charles months so russell's a path in his life that he can take because they they marry each other if he can find that adventure in his life again and excitement then charles on the other hand even carl and charles their names are very similar charles is a representation of a path of never letting go of his obsession or letting go of his grief. So Charles can't let go of his obsession of finding this animal and getting his reputation back on the secluded place. And Carl won't get let go of his grief of Ellie. So they're both kind of reflections of paths that he can take going forward in his life. They, they both also represent self-isolation, where Charles isolates himself on the island for decades, just like how Carl's isolating himself in his home Without wanting to make any establish any new relationships with other people, so they both have representations of self isolation, which is a, a dark trait that a lot of people can suffer from, and it's it's really well explored in this film.
3: Yeah, you might say that Charles is his shadow. If we're looking mm. at it in Jungian <laughs> terms, it's it's a shadow self, and seeing that and getting a chance to confront it and defeat it is a classical theme that you would deal with in psychoanalytic therapy or union therapy were helping people find and recognize the darkness in themselves and decide what they can't become. And Charles Munzer represents exactly that. He is so lost himself that he is willing to forego everything that it means to be a national hero, just to prove that he was right. And that darkness has festered in him for must be fifty years.
0: <laughs> mm-hmm. That's
3: a long time to be isolated, chasing a giant bird
0: <laughs> with talking <I'll-> dogs.
2: <laughs> well, with well, with dogs, that it feels like he made technology so that he wouldn't be as lonely. In That's some
0: true. way, because and also they use. No, I'm sorry.
2: No, no. Go ahead.
0: Well, they use dogs separately as well, Carl and Charles. Carl eventually learns to love Doug, Doug the dog, <laughs> perfectly named. Squirrel! and Squirrel! <laughs> Whereas Charles is really just using lo- dogs as a tool for his obsession in his isolation as well. So you can look at the way they accept dogs and treat dogs later on for Carl for how they're able to move on past their, their grief or their obsession. I also think that this film does a, a an incredible job of showing uh, a more nuanced and human take on elderly people for children. I think, I mean, when I was a kid, I remember you you look at old people, you can't imagine them being children. You can't imagine them like having their lives to you. Like they're just old people and they can be sometimes off putting when you're little and maybe a little scary. There's like an archetype. And this film shows that, you know, all these older people, they were just like you once. And they Mm -hmm. they had a childhood. They used to have fun. They used to go on adventures. They used to do the same things with their friends that you do whether it be playing and uh, whatever so i think the the entire intro of carl and ellie's entire life together but meeting as children and showing that the lead character of the film we walked into this movie understanding it was an old man named carl was going to be the lead but when you watch the first seven minutes of this film he's a child so i think it's important that that i've never seen that in a kid's movie where you can really uh, the children can relate and understand that this old man was just like me once, which I think is mm-hmm. really important.
1: Yeah, I think that's really interesting because typically in movies where they're trying to teach kids to, to be nice to older people, it's usually like Home Alone style where at first they're like a spooky villain and then they're like, no, they're like human beings like us. But they don't really connect them to, like you're saying, like being you, like they were like you one day. It's not just like they're an older person that isn't as scary as you thought, like a boogeyman. They're actually kids too, which I do think is, I, I did write in my notes that this movie is trying to, it seems like it's trying to highlight the humanity in older people and that they need love and affection and care and consideration just like everybody else. And that we're all gonna get old one day, God willing. And so what, how do we wanna be treated as an old person ourselves? So kind of breeding hopefully some empathy for everybody on every stage of life that they're in.
3: Which is important. And it's also important that it provides parents an opportunity to start implanting truth into children early. Cause I know my child was asking me. She's like, "Oh, what, what happened to the girl? Did she get sick? Did she die?" And then, like, I told her, you know, yeah, kiddo, nobody, nobody lives forever. Like, people don't, they don't live forever. And I think that's such an important truth that parents don't always want to tell kids,
1: mm-hmm. and don't always
3: want to talk about with kids that just life is precious due to its impermanence and. Communicating that to children early and often that they can understand that taking the picture and being with somebody and doing special things is important because you never know how much time you get. And the more we can start teaching that earlier, the easier it is for kids to understand and not be shocked and for parents to have to tell more stories about what happens when somebody's not around anymore. Mm-hmm.
2: Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Because it
0: will happen. Are there any are there any uh, documented statistics or anything of of parents if they wait too long to teach their kids about grief and death and life, or does it have any kind of effect on kids? Is there any kind of study like that that you would know of? Not off the top of my head.
1: Not top of my head. Other than what I always tell parents as like the resident kid therapist is that kids are smarter than you think in that they're savvier than you think. And they're curious. And if you choose not to tell them something, they're going to figure it out either from their peers or a book or now the internet or a movie. And what I just like to remind parents is you're going to lose your window to have some way to not control the narrative, but to, hold the narrative in such a way that your kid will know what to do with that information because kids are constantly, when they're little, even like Russell's age, maybe a little younger than that, they're forming boxes in their brain with all the information that's coming in all the time. And you get to decide, well, you get to help the kid decide like how to put those boxes in their brain. So either something's going to be scary or misinterpreted, or I don't know, they're just going to put their kid lens on it. And so I don't have any statistics to back up what I'm saying other than what I know anecdotally from doing this work and that kids usually know more than you think about what's going on, especially if you hold on to things past a certain age, like I would say probably past, well, I'm going to, I was about to say something, I take it back because i work worked with kids as little as kindergartners where I could tell that they knew something was up, whatever that up is, if it's death or even incarceration or something like that going on within their family, and no one's really telling them because they don't want to break the bubble of it. But the kid is usually already somewhat aware that something odd's going on, and now they have to use their little kid brain to try to conceptualize what it is. So, yeah, like movies like this that introduce topics, I think, are great for parents to launch off of and then kind of like sounds like you might have had been like have a more deeper conversation like not even necessarily like Carl with Ellie but also I think this movie does a good job with like Russell of bringing up another really heavy topic which is a parent that's not that around and that Mm -hmm. they don't really skirt around it like they bring it up several times in which Russell even though he's a happy-go-lucky looking kid has a dad that neglects him And the movie does a good job of making that obvious without getting too hallmark. You know, this is a very special episode Mm -hmm, energy mm -hmm. about it. And also without like really beleaguering it too. It stays right in that sweet spot pocket of how a kid would really conceptualize and maybe even talk to their friend about their parent not really being around as much as they should.
3: Which really illustrates the point of the question you guys are asking. Look at the difference between how Carl or even, or not Carl, but um, uh, the kid whose name just left my head. But Russell. Russell, thank you. How Russell and even Forrest Gump answer when people ask, where's your dad?
1: What does Forrest Gump say?
3: He's on vacation.
1: Oh. <laughs> because
3: that's what Mrs. Gump says. Oh,
1: Mrs. Gump.
3: Yes. Uh, but when you see these kids they don't have the opportunity to grieve if we don't tell them the truth they don't have the opportunity to both pre-grieve and and grieve and close out a relationship that's hurting them now obviously that's difficult with parents but kids that are told truths that dad can't come dad isn't gonna come dad isn't making space for you right now and have the opportunity to go oh okay, well, I guess I don't need to think about dad anymore.
1: Mm -hmm.
3: We're taking away the opportunity to grieve and close out a chapter or a connection that they need to close out. And lessons from movies like this of getting to see kind of the damage that can do when we tell kids half-truths, but they still figure out, like Brittany's saying that like, yeah, dad doesn't really have time for me. It's heartbreaking Mm -hmm. to them. And We need to take lessons from even what Sesame Street did in the late 70s or 80s when Mr. Hooper died. Watching episodes like that where they just address it and they tell the cold, hard truth of it where the cast has to tell Big Bird that Mr. Hooper is not coming back ever and listen to Mm -hmm. Big Bird's childlike questions of, well, will he come back tomorrow? And it's, it's heartbreaking, but it also allows them to adjust and deal with The truth rather than waiting for the time that they invented in their brain that the details that make sense to them
0: make sense to the rest of the world and it doesn't come in in terms of russell is his happy-go-lucky nature um clearly he's being affected by his father as he reveals it multiple times in the film and it's it's very sad at times in a way would you say he could be projecting an outward happiness that he isn't really feeling but around others he wants to just be perceived as being very happy having always having fun while trying to hide his real inner turmoil i don't think kids that age think that
3: deep into it usually kids not until the age of 12 have their brain developed enough that that may be possible i think. Russell is probably just trying to do the best that he can to be happy and be in the moment. There may be some of that, but it won't be as intellectually available to him at this stage in his development.
1: Mm-hmm. I will say where I'm ner- I'm nervous for Russell. My little heart is nervous for Russell is I think he's already developing quite a people pleasing. um, Like coping mechanism. Like, I wrote in my notes, like he's very brave and doesn't worry enough about his own health and safety over helping others. And it made me so happy because I hadn't watched this movie in like 15 years. So I didn't remember what happened after that. But then right after that, Carl tells him that I don't need your help and I'd rather you be safe than give me help. And I was like, that's exactly what I was talking about. Because I do think with Russell he probably like you're saying ben that's probably a lot of that is probably his personality and i would if i was his therapist i would want to make sure that to keep an eye on that behavior as i continue to work with him as he gets older because i work with a lot of older people too that There's so much of that good student, good kid, people pleasing energy to overcompensate for places where they feel like they're lacking or they must be lacking. Because if dad's not showing up, then maybe I just need to try harder or they connect their achievements with their value. So where we see Russell making that one-to-one connection already, that if I just can get this badge, then my dad will show up. And that's enough For my dad to show up and be there for me. And I see that, like I said, we're all still little kids inside of us, right? Even as adults. And so I work with adults sometimes where that little kid still shows up as, you know, I have to go above and beyond, um, or I like perfectionism, or I can't, you know, say no to anybody, or I have to always be happier, have a smile on my face because I don't want to like rock the boat or upset anyone, you know? And then I think what happens with that is then you end up denying your needs in yourself. I think what doesn't make me, where I'm on with you, Ben, and that he's still a little too young for that, is he still does things that's very age appropriate and annoying kid behavior, like laying down and letting himself be dragged because he's not <laughs> feeling it. So he's not a kid where he's not already doing that thing where like they're totally denying themselves and totally like, I don't need anything. Like I think in an older kid with this stuff going on, there might be a lot more of denial of things and trying to like smile really big the whole time and not act like anything's bothering them. But Russell soul does enough obnoxious um, self-driven behaviors that I think is very age appropriate that says that he's not quite hit in that like perfectionistic thing yet. Cause I don't like Ben was saying, I don't think he's quite old enough yet. No, to do
3: I appreciate that. him as like yeah. 10
1: yeah
0: and so he's he's desperate and he's always been seeking the approval and acceptance of his father and so in a way he's seeking that in other people by being a people pleaser and and the achievement he is that one badge he'll do anything to get that helping the elderly badge i
1: mean he like puts himself on a floating house
0: like so (laughs) dangerous
1: for a badge because in his mind it's not a badge it's like uh, this is how i'm going to see my dad again
3: and also, to be fair yeah. to Russell, it wasn't floating when he got on it. True, he <laughs> yeah, yeah. jumped
1: off. I mean, I'm sure he might have got off. scared <laughs> and like back he jumped into off the house. I think. He didn't that bad choices <clears throat> that are wild, but he's also like a little adventurer, I assume. He's a little explorer.
0: Well, speaking of the floating house, so fun fact so if Carl's house was approximately 1600 square feet. And the average house weighs between 60 to 100 pounds per square foot. It weighs about 120,000 pounds. If the average helium balloon can carry 0.009 pounds or 4.6 grams, it would take 12,658,000 balloons to lift this house off the ground. But only 20,622 balloons appear on the house when it first lifts off. Only enough to lift about 185 pounds. So, Pixar, you got to step your game up. But <laughs> it's still 20 looked, million <laughs> still looked incredible. But the motif of balloons are so important throughout this film. It starts early on with Ellie sending that little balloon message to um, Carl when he's in his bed when he after the injury, which is so funny. He's like, "I'm gonna go on an adventure," and falls right down through the attic, and uh, what he breaks his arm or something like that. And mm. then, obviously carl does that in their elderly age when she's in the hospital as well as being a balloon salesman and then eventually lifting up the house out of frustration when he's going to get evicted out of his house with all the balloons and even just the little shots of him they worked at was a zoo or an amusement park where she works with the animals and he has the balloon carts and he's always preventing it from falling but this motif of balloons is obviously the main image of this movie the posters and everything and for me, I'm always trying to figure out what the balloons represent to Carl, to anyone. And for I, I'm pretty much usually stumbling upon they represent youth, they represent love, and they represent dreams, whether Carl realizes it or not. And it represents Ellie in a lot of ways. For me, it's it's rising from uh, hardship and rising from turmoil uh, into a new level of your life. So the, the rising, the ascension, um, getting out of that funk, if someone's in the funk. What do you all think the balloons mean?
3: Uh, fragility the fragility of that happiness and the youth that Carl makes points throughout the film to constantly put his elbow back down to keep things from floating away. But much like a balloon and the happiness that they bring life is precious and fragile and it only lasts for so long. And we all have to eventually say goodbye to our balloons. Just like Carl has to say goodbye to Ellie and Russell will have to say goodbye to Carl. That was good.
1: <laughs> I was dark. just gonna say, I don't know. <laughs> drop <You> th-
3: <laughs> guys! Like you, you two dork? Like I'm sorry, I made you did the therapist make you feel something by accident?
0: But <laughs> you guys still have emotions? No. <laughs> I was just gonna say, I don't
1: know, because like little kids. Like oh.
0: <laughs> But you can't deny, I mean, in terms of Pixar's entire filmography, and they've made a lot of movies now, I think that just the image of the, the house flying. Because of the balloons. just so, so the floating house, it's the most uh, striking and memorable image they've ever crafted as a company, I think. In terms of all of their films, just like the flying house, I think is just their most iconic thing that's ever been created by the Pixar team. Uh, yeah, that or ne- I think ne- Nemo. Nemo is yeah, he's just a fish, though. Yeah, but he's so iconic. I'm just talking like a, in the o- an image. An image. An image. Mm-hmm. And ha- the theme it represents so many things. Yeah, so I, you're think right. the, I think the floating house is is the pinnacle of like the iconography of all Pixar films. Yeah, I think that Pixar was just operating on just a different level back then cuz this is 2009, and this is when Disney bought Pixar and I wouldn't say like their their quality of animation's gone down, but a bit of the storytelling has changed over the last 5 to 10 years. And I feel like we're not getting dense, highly thematic stories and characters like we were getting with movies like up and ratatouille and toy story monsters inc and i think coco, the last coco the coco, last great one was coco i think coco is that was 2019 was terrific yeah. and so yeah i'll give that one as kind of an soul soul was good soul was really great yeah. too but i mean luca didn't really have it it was was fine and the, the most recent ones were fine but i think up is like the pinnacle of what Pixar can achieve as a, as a production company well, and studio. Well, yeah, it influenced all the other movies they made. I mean, Toy Story took a much more mature theme on the next two films after Up. And mm-hmm. so I think Up changed the trajectory of what they realized they could do as storytellers in that plane of making children's films.
3: Well, yeah, and if you look at just the themes in Toy Story 3 alone, like the amount of like, tear-jerky storytelling that happens in that. And yet again, it's the same themes of having to let go and move on and let things transform and find new meaning which is therapy Mm. Mm
1: mm-hmm
0: all right, what, what else are we going to talk about? <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> I, well, what, what I love about this movie is this is coming off Ratatouille in 2007. 2007. And right. Ratatouille really changed the game when it came to filmmaking for their animation style and really kind of incorporating production elements, cinematography, making digital lenses, digital cameras to kind of give it that like you're actually on a set shooting a film with lenses, with setting up shots and dolly zooms. And, you know, at times when I watch Up, I I sometimes feel like they're trying to do their best Steven Spielberg impression with a lot of the cinematography and a lot of the sequences, especially the first act of the film. But Mm -hmm. I I think that's why this one's also so special is they started really developing those techniques. And, I I mean, they mastered it with Toy Story 4 for sure. Yeah, it's beautiful. Um, But I also think that definitely the first time I saw it, um, and watching it again, I think I've only seen it twice, but I, I definitely would relate to Carl more than any other character because I've had instances in my life where I've just been in that, in that rut and I've isolated and I've pushed people away and I've kind of had a nihilistic view of things and, and not wanted to open up to other people. And th- that's, those, that's something I've struggled with in the past um, when I was in my 20s uh, off and on a few times and i was in very dark places and alone and never felt lonelier in my life and so i think the character of carl and how they portray those ideas and those things that so many people can can suffer through in their lives it's really well done and i for me i found it to be extremely relatable um because i think i mean everybody goes through their rough spots and the rough patches in life and it's hard to get out of it, and it's impossible to get out of things like that on your own, which I th- ultimately I think is the, one of the main messages of the film is to, to not sh- isolate yourself like Carl does because he found that it, had, it did nothing for him. And then embracing life is really the only thing that worked to pull him out of that. And before we continue, the best way to support Raiders of the Lost podcast is to leave those five-star reviews on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, a.k.a. iTunes. I love to read the Apple reviews, which let you leave, leave written five-star reviews, so I'll read one off in a couple of minutes. I can't wait to get to that. But this helps us get seen by new people. It helps us promote our show on the platforms all over the Internet so new people can discover Raiders of the Lost podcast. You can also become a patron. At patreon.com slash Raiders of the Lost Podcast. We have five different tiers of support and membership for Patreon. They are as low as $2, gets you access to every single bonus episode, as well as the weekly chat, which posts every Wednesday on Patreon $2, $5, $10, $25, and $100. Every tier has different levels of perks like video messages. $10 gets you access to our Discord community where we have watch parties and interact with you all the time. $25 is a great perk. You get a custom episode wherever you want. We'll do it for you. $100 is full of incredible things like free merch, a private watch party. Come on the show after three months for a fun guest segment. So Patreon... Allows us to do this show full time. We couldn't do it without you. So thank you so much to our patrons all around the world. This episode is sponsored by our friends at MoviePosters.com. Use our promo code at MoviePosters.com to get 10% off your order today. They are also doing a movie poster giveaway in this episode. If you want to enter for a chance to win a free movie poster, all you have to do is leave us a five star Apple review, screenshot it, and de- then DM it to us on Instagram. Now, if you've already left us a review, all you have to do is hit leave a review and it will actually show your previous review. You can screenshot that and send it to us so you don't, have to make an, you don't have to delete that and make another one. And if you don't have an Apple account, all you got to do is use an email to sign up. It's super easy. So again, leave us a five-star Apple review and send it to us on Instagram DMs. We will select a winner next week. Good luck, everyone. In the meantime, be sure to go to movieposters.com for all of your poster needs and use our promo code. Raiders 10 to get percent off your order.
3: Thank you for sharing that. I think that's going to make it more connectable to the audience to recognize that there's something about these stories, these films that connect to the real experiences we've all had and that we're seeing it told in another avenue that allows us to connect to our own experience without it being as on the nose as our own life was. And it's not as painful, but you can still relate and find healing And like we talked about in our last experience, sometimes even watching a film can help us find a narrative pathway to a corrective experience that can heal a wound. And it's so important. And I think you're dead on this movie almost to a T follows the work of Viktor Frankl, who was a psychiatrist who was imprisoned in Auschwitz and lost his wife to extermination. And, his entire work, his therapy, logo therapy, and the idea that he comes up with, um, both taps into Nietzsche and nihilism, and where Nietzsche himself ended up with was a famous quote that often gets falsely attributed to Frankl, including by me before, which is that a man who has a why can endure any how. The mm-hmm. pioneer of the question of nihilism is the one who came up with that question, and then. Frankl takes that and extrapolates into the the most important point I think that's ever been made in existential psychology, which is that suffering is unavoidable. We cannot escape pain. We cannot escape death. We cannot escape any degree of suffering. So what we can do about it is to make meaning from our suffering. And we see that in this story where Carl takes His suffering and instead of staying deep and isolated in it, like we have all had periods of time in our life that we have done and chooses to let this little kid in who's a complete representation of his past self and rediscover it and make meaning out of his life now by being someone who can be important and there for Russell. And that is where he finds his freedom and can let go of the thing that means more to him than anything else, which is that grape soda button top or a bottle Mm -hmm. cap that Mm -hmm. Ellie pinned on him when he was eight years old. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, I think along with the meaning part is shifting roles too, because Carl is so identifies with being like Ellie's partner. And I think that's what he's still, that's the well he's still dipping into to try to help himself feel better. So I would argue that he, I wonder if he really, he probably can acknowledge that he is isolated. And I bet you, because he's still talking to her, like through the house and through like then like the house later on, if there's a part of him that is telling him, well, I'm still with her. And because I'm still in this home that I refuse to leave and I'm still talking to her and the house is still surrounded, like I'm still surrounded by her. And we see in like the third act that he throws everything, very symbolic, he throws everything that was the two of them, including the chairs that they focus in on, out of the house to save Russell. And I think in that moment, he is allowing his role to shift from Ellie's partner and the Carl he was before to the carl he can now be to russell and being like an adult protector and support for russell and letting himself evolve and grow i mean it happens in a dire moment so it'll, his brain doesn't have to be his brain's moving quick so he mm-hmm. just kind of makes that choice right he doesn't have to toil about it really um and i think that's a big part of that meaningful work like you're referencing ben is you know also how can we shift the role we have in our community, the role we have with others and that, I think we all kind of acknowledge, especially coming off of like pandemic and like you know significant times of lockdown, that community is really important. And that being with others and having a support system is important. One of my first notes in watching this is like, where's Carl's support system? Like once Ellie's gone, why is that it? You know, he's older, but he's not like 90 where everyone he knows would no longer be around, you know, why doesn't he have community? And like, I mean, his neighbors, I guess, are gone. Oh, but even just yeah, girl where they both only children, you know, it makes me really curious of like, how did he get to this place of isolation and that we do it because we want to protect ourselves, like something you guys brought up, I think, before we started recording is vulnerability, like the anecdote to. This isolation is allowing ourselves to be vulnerable, to like go out in the world and allow yourself to be potentially hurt again. I mean, a lot of why we isolate is very protective in nature on top of just it feeling sometimes insufferable, the idea of trying to change or trying to do something different in our lives to bring about change. Because we have to, when I talk about (laughs) vulnerability with clients, a lot of times they look like they want to barf, which I get. <laughs> mm-hmm. but it's kind of like everything you want in a lot of ways is on the other side of vulnerability and discomfort.
2: Well, and it makes me think a lot about how, you know, one of the things that anxiety and depression do really well is make it feel like you're alone. Mm. It's a big part of how they work together of really making it seem as though you're completely alone and and as if no one would understand and as if no one else has ever felt this way before and really makes it feel very singular and and I, would, and I would wonder too, and be curious about Carl in general. I think that there's some natural isolation that happens with our elderly community in general, because I think if they don't have a big family, if their kids are spread out, if they don't have any children, I think that there is a lot of ways that we don't interact with people of a, over a certain age in our community, because it's not something we don't... We don't really honor the elderly in our in our culture this culture in in this culture that we have we don't really honor them and so there really isn't a lot of ways for them to naturally be supported unless they already have a group of people around them where they've stayed in the same place for a long time but even with carl in this situation even the people that he knew around who lived around him maybe that was his only community nobody everybody sold their place or maybe they had left previously so i think one of the things I think Carl's experiencing some natural experiences of isolations as well as isolating himself from not being with the person who is who he shared his entire life with. I and mean, he knew her since he was eight. In a lot of ways, and I've heard this said before, just like, I don't know, online somewhere, or <laughs> this is how people talk about it in general, is that men often are married to their best friend. And so their... They're, um motivation to find an entire community is not often as likely as it is for women to want to have a community continue to build their community. It's not the same. Men aren't really given the same choice. And again, not that all men don't have their own communities because they certainly do, but more that it's not as supported in our culture that men, for men to be happy that's one way that a man could be happy is by having a community of people around him. And so and so a part of this, I think too, is just showing that as you get older, I think sometimes some of those relationships and experiences are just harder to come by. Mm-hmm. And I think, and also knowing that when we lose someone, the way that we see the world changes a lot and it becomes, and the way that we experience grief also feels very singular. That's great. Time. That's
0: a great point because it can relate to the cause of his depression because, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but my understanding of depression is a, a hyper focus on the past um, and kind of an obsession over the past events, uh, whether positive or negative, and that can fuel the depression and why he's so consumed by his past, by his history, because she's not there anymore. So he's focused on how good his life used to be. And so he's not um paying attention to the present or the future and so he's just um, lost himself into the memories of the past that was good and so he's not embracing what can be anymore
1: i mean there is the saying that depression lives in the past and anxiety lives in the future so that could be a bit of what you're talking about and i think there there can just be a lot of not living in the present i think most mental health diagnoses symptoms A common feature of them is you're not living in the now. Your brain is somewhere else. That's why a lot of mindfulness practice is what is recommended as um, practical coping skills for depression, anxiety, to bring you back into the now, like what's currently happening. Because also depression, you can't do anything about what's already changed. It's a really good way to stay stuck and to beat yourself up and to marinate on the things that aren't going well. Or... Maybe another way you're suggesting to, to romanticize the past sometimes as well, or to get really stuck on it. Like if this had gone different or if I had done that, um, kind of what you mentioned earlier, Ben, which we talk about in our Spider-Man episode, our most recent one is like that corrective experience idea. Like maybe if I could go back and if I just had, you know, not torn my ACL and gotten into the NFL or whatever, that my life would be totally different. And I wouldn't feel the way I am now. And. It's really hard, like a big component that I teach clients is radical acceptance, just the idea that we can't know that. And so to keep marinating on that what if, what function is it serving if it's just to torment ourselves? Because sometimes it is helpful to look backwards if it helps us gain perspective on, or just information about where did I used to find meaning? What used to help me feel good? Um, A lot of times I work with clients, I talk about when they're kids, maybe I would do this with Carl, you know, like what made you feel good and like yourself when you were young, when before we get, we got like kind of bogged down by life and social, you know, um, acceptability. And could you bring some of that into your life now to help yourself feel, I don't know, like yourself, feel authentic and getting yourself out of the isolation and the negative habits that can form with depression cuz a lot of depression too is just ruminating being stuck and then depression's so good at feeding itself then like mm-hmm. you don't take care of yourself as much as you would like to you don't see other people it just keeps you really locked in to your head and you can get really stuck in the past cuz you're not really creating new new, good experiences and, or the future is not available to you. You either can't visualize it, you can't see it, you can't believe in it. So what is the future other than more of this?
0: And then, and to contrast that in a way, anxiety is, a uh, hyper focus on a negative outcome of a possibility of the future and presenting it as a, a too real of a possibility, even though it's hasn't happened yet, but having too much of a focus on a negative outcome in the future. That can be part of it. Um,
3: what's important to understand about anxiety is that anxiety is the over activation of our alarm system that's designed to make us uncomfortable enough that we do something that promotes our survival. And why that's important is because we only have one body. We have one body, but our body, Mind is capable of dissociating into infinite realities. So kind of like being uploaded into the matrix where you can imagine infinite worlds or be in the danger room for the X-Men. You have one body that is fighting imaginary villains and you can get really tired and really worn out. But the machine that can run those simulations can never, ever stop and it will be fine. So understanding that anxiety partially comes from overactivation of the nervous system you can understand that part of the way for dealing with anxiety is calming the body back down and grounding to the present because otherwise you can run infinite scenarios and ask yourself infinite of those what if questions that do have that negative outcome that then you hyperfixate on but the key that gets missed in a lot of early therapy even for like early career clinicians is understanding that talking to somebody who's anxious to tell them, well, why don't you just be calm or calm <laughs> down? Or why don't you just stop it? Like the old Bob don't Newhart skit. Stop Not it. think about that.
1: Why don't you just not think about that? Well, that doesn't even make sense. Why, why would you worry mm-hmm. about that? That is that's not even going to happen.
3: Doesn't work and just promote shame that internalizes the messaging that there's no way out and then builds into depression. But what is important to understand is that it's yes, the fixation on those things, but it's also the activation that comes with it. And the only way out of it is to solve the activation first, ground back to the present. And the question I love to ask people with that of, is there a tiger trying to eat you right now in this room? And they go, no, like then do you need your body to be that tense right now, or your heart to be going, no, okay, so nothing, so we've established, nothing is trying to eat you from like alive right now, right, no, okay, breathe, it's okay to breathe. And you can see the level drop, and then, then the thoughts speed up. And one of my favorite stories to tell this little anecdote is think about all the ridiculous shit you will do when you are running late and you lose your keys. Yeah, there it is. (laughs) You felt that, right? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) absolute panic. (laughs) Right, like tearing couch cushions up and emptying the garbage can and like checking behind the milk because one time your friend left the keys there and you want to be sure you didn't too and like making sure you check like in between your car seats until you realize what happened was a piece of mail fell on top of where your keys always go but because you were distressed and running late, your body was already so activated that you couldn't even perceive to think, move the paper. All you looked and saw because you were stressed and in reactive mode was no keys, which prompted you to elevate further into anxiety of, well, what if I get fired? What if this happens? What if I can't pay my rent? What if, the... and then those points you were making come true. But think about even when I said lose your keys running late, you guys had physical reactions to it. Though. Visceral reaction. <laughs> oh man. <laughs> Why you gotta be like that? Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive help supplements for everyone four and up. Like delicious lolly Focus Pops or lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at Ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose,
0: treat, cure, or prevent any disease. And so in, in that regard, so in terms of Carl and his depression not being in the present, so in, to contrast the effects of anxiety, he is not moving, he's stagnant, he's in an active person, and he's become a passive person in the world. And these all stem from his depression. And so I I would wonder if Carl walked into your office to seek treatment. What would you What would the steps be for you to treat him?
3: Uh, so I'm gonna tell you that um, I am gonna go try not to go too deep. But the I would differentiate between hypoarousal from trauma and grief and depression. Yeah.
0: Um,
3: Chronic hypoarousal is a really important thing to understand. And that if you try to just treat Carl for depression, which I personally view depression more as when people have that chemical imbalance that prevents them from producing enough of the neurotransmitters they need to get the natural rewards for doing things normally. Like when you were saying, like you, you know, you had a period where you're feeling like lonely and depressed and down. Did working out or anything that you would normally do provide the same? Buzz, same boost that it Absolutely did. not. None. Absolutely not. Right? Yeah. Like no matter what you did, it wouldn't feel good. Like, your brain exactly. was not producing enough chemicals to give you the natural reinforcement that comes with doing it. And I think when I look at depression, I usually view it more as getting stuck in that where you have like depleted your well and you can't get out. But the question we need to ask is what happened that caused that? Because sometimes, sometimes there's no reason. Sometimes some, it, it, we're just there. But other times there's grief and trauma that's unprocessed and gets stuck. So for Carl, I would want to process with him the trauma of losing Ellie, of watching her get old, watching her get sick, and then seeing her die. I think I would want to start there because I think where Carl is at is that every minute he's alive, he has to face the reality that she's not there. So he's kind of partially dissociated our dissociative defense system works on two levels. I can win, and uh, it is where our fight and flight live, right? If I can win, I can win by doing something. So I can either run away or I can fight this to beat it. There is no running away from death, and there's no fighting it. So we choose the other side, which is freeze and fawn. Uh, Carl's not fully frozen, but he's shut down. Like you're saying, he's withdrawn. He's not engaging. He's staying stuck in a reality that's pleasing to him. So much to the point that he strikes somebody in the head with his cane who's grappling with the only physical representation of Ellie that he really has left besides the house, which is that mailbox.
1: Yeah, that's a trauma response right there. Like whenever you have a reaction that doesn't match the situation. Right. Um, and we don't, yeah. as a society, understand trauma reactions enough. And we tend to really, which is what happens to Carl in this movie, just vilify, vilify people mm-hmm. when they have those over-the-top reactions. Like, that'd be a situation which you'd call someone crazy in, like, a not-so-nice way.
3: Or incompetent or senile. And mm-hmm. really, Carl is quite sharp. He is not senile at all. He does not need to be anywhere. He's not a public menace. Where he is is... He's so stuck in this, I can't win. So he's finding his freeze out point. Mm -hmm. And for me, coming from a trauma-focused narrative uh, or trauma-focused orientation, I am going to want to process with Carl the things that he believes he can't escape from so that his only way out of pain is to shut down because otherwise it's too painful and he can't do it. That's -hmm. where I would start.
1: Yeah. And I would just want to say as well, like, Carl wouldn't be, Hannah or Ben, you can disagree with me, but Carl wouldn't be someone I would even diagnose with depression. I'd probably diagnose him with adjustment disorder, which is how it sounds, which is you're having difficulty adjusting to a big change in life, um, which can be bereavement. And that's when someone like Carl walks into your office, you need to make sure you ask their whole story. Because if you just ask, what are your current symptoms? Like you would maybe diagnose someone like him with depression and that wouldn't be correct. Um, unless these symptoms that he's showing now were things that have come up before and other moments of his life, even when he was with Ellie or, you know, at different fa- stages of his life. But if it's just something that, like depression or anxiety symptoms that have only come on after a significant life change, then we would give them an adjustment diagnosis, not um, like a mood disorder or even like generalized anxiety disorder, unless the anxiety started popping up everywhere about everything. And even then I would take my time before I would switch someone over from adjustment to generalized. but you can have both too.
3: Um, and adjustment disorder comes with specifiers for with depression, yeah. with anxiety, with mixed, with disturbance of conduct, with all of the above. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a diagnosis that can be applied for 30 days or so long as the effects of the change are active in their life which is where it gets really difficult to provide a correct diagnosis for someone who's grieving because death is permanent
1: yeah it's not like you know a situation is going to go away anytime soon which is why like it's like a breakup (laughs) oh i would say it's more breakup is grief yeah yeah like an active ongoing situation which i would argue is most things people have to adjust to like our active ongoing situations adjustments are slippery diagnosis mostly with insurance companies. They're the ones that don't want you to have it hung on for too long. Mm -hmm. Hannah, you look like you have an opinion. (laughs) Well, you know how I feel about insurance companies, Um, (laughs) (laughs) which is what I was
2: thinking of. Um, No, but I was thinking about uh, how, you know, definitely what Ben said in terms of treatment, but I think also the important thing with Carl will be helping him figure out his identity again when we have a big major loss like this, um, when we lose the person that again, gives us so much meaning, we have so many roles attached to being their partner, being their friend, Mm -hmm. um, being a part of their family, that how Carl identifies himself for the rest of his life will be different than it was Mm -hmm. before Ellie died. And helping him create that identity feel comfortable with that identity even think even just thinking about what that what he means and what that means to him now what it means to be a widower um helping him identify that and find that identity for him that feels the most comfortable for him going forward um i think that would be one of the big things that i would focus on with him uh, in of course, along with all the things that Ben said too, like all of those things are really important as well. But I think also just really helping him understand that he's going to be different than he was before Ellie died, and that's just the truth. That's what happens when we have a major loss in our life—a major, lof- major loss, a major loss—to lose a spouse that you've been with for more than half of your life would—it's going to change who you are.
1: I mean, I can't even imagine for him because if they met at like eight I would imagine like he's never really existed in a time that he remembers without her like that would feel as a therapist I would feel overwhelmed on my client's behalf about that like I'd be like oof we aren't going to be on a journey together you and I because that's hardcore you know not Mm -hmm. just to have lost the spouse you met when you were in your 20s your 30s your 40s but when you were little and that's been your best friend Um, that's that's
2: really tough and then on top of that
0: his life has been defined by her Mm -hmm. in their relationship Mm -hmm. not having children not having uh like you said a support system of other people around them so once she's gone what does he have yeah this therapist is it is it dangerous to be that dependent on somebody else and vice versa in a relationship like you said not having a support system is there is there a danger to that psychologically Mm -hmm. Um, yeah i
1: mean i always i do couples therapy every now and again And Hannah's also a couple therapist, so she can chime in if I'm getting anything wrong. But I have this conversation with couples where I'm like, you're not supposed to be each other's everything. That's also a toxic sort of like Disney narrative that your partner is like your best friend and your lover and your confidant and everything. And that's not fair. Like it's a lot of pressure to put on one person for starters. And then two, We're supposed to have a support system. We're supposed to diversify where we get our needs met because, you know, your partner might have no offense to them. Like they're not super strong, maybe in one area. And that's where you go to another person in your life, even for silly things. Like if your boyfriend doesn't like to watch movies, so you have a friend that you go to the movies with, because if that's a passion of yours, and then there are certain things that, you know, when I work with couples, sometimes they have sensitive topics that are triggers for them. And that'll become a hard topic between them of like, well, I should be able to talk to you about anything. And so I sometimes have to tell couples, you know, it's okay if you can't talk. That's why we have friends. That's why we have close friends. We have family because there are some topics that your partners are allowed to have boundaries around for their own well being And so, Mm -hmm. yeah, it's not healthy. And also from the, like this movie brings up is if God forbid something happens to your partner or your best friend or whoever, what then? You never want... Anything that makes your well being stable to be one thing, whether it's, I mean, I talked to this to teenagers about their phones. Like, I'm like, what if your phone falls down a gutter and dies? Are you going to be screwed? Like, you never yes. want just one person, one object, <laughs> one activity to be the end all be all for yourself because life is out of our control in a lot of ways. And you don't want to be at the whims of that one thing. So yeah, I mean, and also it can create a lot of incidental codependence and enmeshment where it makes me curious how much of that might've been going on with Carl and Ellie, just organically, not that I think that they're yeah. like toxically codependent. And also it makes me curious cause Ellie is shown when they were growing up as being, seeming to be the more outgoing one of the two. So I'm also curious if maybe Ellie was the person that brought in other relationships into their partnership. And once she died, I'm curious if their work, if there was community that petered out because Carl didn't know how or couldn't or chose not to maintain it. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, there's still a lot we don't know about what their life looked like outside of their specific relationship before she died. And maybe he did ostracize the people that were around and became kind of a classic curmudgeon, which is kind of how the movie opens, you know, like really, which is a way to have control, right? When you feel like something has happened to you that's really out of control, we can always control destroying something. So when we get into more self sabotage behaviors, it can be a way to also feel like we're protecting ourselves and depression loves that. They're like, oh, you're gonna keep doing stuff that confirms that you're a piece of garbage. Well, we already feel like you're a piece of garbage. So this is great for us. So yeah, like, why don't you yell at that guy or why don't you throw your mailbox at that dude? And then we can just we can just lay in the confirmation bias euphoria that you are a piece of garbage that no one likes anymore. And the only person who liked you died, so now what? You know, all that stuff. It's like, I try to tell clients, there is like a weird, it is satisfying when, especially when we're depressed or going through depression symptoms there is satisfaction to being confirmed in those beliefs that are really negative like why does it feel hard to take a compliment and why is it sometimes feel so satisfac- satisfying to screw something up i mean it's all that simple fact that our brain loves sameness and our brain hates difference because it's uncomfortable and so, yeah, it's a very long answer to your question, but no, it's a great answer. Fascinating, <laughs> honestly.
0: And I look at, uh, I look at the finale when when Carl is ridding the house of all the items to lighten it and save Russell. I look at that. He's of him finally saying goodbye to Ellie mm-hmm. um, and finally accepting her passing, accepting what happened, and being able to move on. But essentially, exactly him clearing the house of items is his. He's finally saying goodbye to her.
1: Yeah. It's like a little like rich, like it doesn't quite happen like this in the movie because it's done under duress. Yeah. But I do think before <laughs> that, though, he does have that sort of more ritualistic grieving moment where he lets himself finally sit down and look through her adventure book. And that's something that really true to griefing process. And sometimes I talk about with clients is, do you need to find time to be with in essence, the person that you lost and to maybe watch something or do something or read something that you shared together or that reminds you of them to really, well, one, say goodbye, right? That's kind of the Mm -hmm. typical response, but also to let yourself feel your feelings. You know, that's a hot topic right now on TikTok, somatic therapy, feeling your feelings. But it is like letting yourself really have those feelings and not finding them anymore. So I wonder if part of him being able to do that is he finally let himself have that breathing moment right before of like, just radically like acknowledging that she's gone.
3: He did, he had to. Mm-hmm. And um, Brittany, there was something that I wanted to point out in your, your metaphor before. Yeah. That mm-hmm. you were talking about essentially like how important it is. And you guys asked, if, is it dangerous, right? You guys called me a dork and then you then proved my exact point in your very long answer that the whole movie uses a balloon as a metaphor (laughs) for the fragility of the relationship and how dangerous it is to base your happiness (laughs) on that. But I will give you the pass because you probably have not had a child who had their birthday balloon blown away in the wind on their
1: birthday. I'll give you a little anecdote. One of my first anxiety <laughs> freakouts as a child it was like four and I had to have a balloon for a dance recital performance and my brother's popped it Ugh, villain origin story and I cried hysterically with anxiety about showing up to this dance recital without my balloon So, you know, we're all having great memories about balloons in this room today.
3: (laughs) And now we know why you guys responded to me with a hostile response. You see, there it is.
1: Well, I thought your silly ass was gonna bring up Batman somehow. I also thought you were gonna bring up Batman. I
2: was waiting for you to be a dick. So yeah.
0: (laughs) There's still time, idle time.
3: time. There's still time, but I didn't even have to be the first one to say Batman. So I don't know if you guys know, but in every single episode, I essentially played the Kevin Bacon game with them with Batman (laughs) and I find some super obnoxious way since the beginning of our show to tie mm-hmm. every episode to Batman some way, somehow, and they never know when I'm gonna do it or how I'm gonna do it.
1: <laughs> I can feel it sometimes. I like always know when you're gonna
2: do it. Don't act, act, act like me. we don't know. You get, <laughs> you get this stupid look on your face. I always know
0: when you're about to He puts to on the cowl. Oh, he's going to use his cowl. Exactly. <laughs> Is it this yes, way? exactly. <laughs> For he starts talking like this.
1: Medium attached. Ben just made himself a mask with his fingers. You're the coolest guy I know, Ben. <laughs> I am not- I could t- I <laughs>
0: <laughs> i could connect this uh movie to santa claus though so the actor who plays carl played santa in elf that's oh, true hey.
3: yes he did mm-hmm. ed, ed asner mm-hmm.
0: is awesome mm-hmm. what a what a fun fact yes, so if someone's if someone's dealing with this adjustment disorder whether it's from you know a loss of a loved one or or a hard breakup how does someone move on and and let go of that grief and try to accept new people into their lives and accept maybe a new relationship without being in the state of state of isolation and having this massive wall built up. I think it comes primarily through
3: the acceptance and acknowledgement that feelings exist to communicate meaning from our experiences. And without them, we can't feel what we need to, to move what, had been true from an is and a predictably will be so to a was and deal with the pain that it takes to re-encode all those memories and all that information and all those predictive expected memories, like, oh, on Christmas, I'll be unwrapping presents with Ellie and I'll get her this for Christmas. Or when you break up with somebody, oh, we're gonna go on this trip or we go to the wedding or I'd normally do that with her. All that has to be felt. As we re-encode it, because when you encoded the memory in the first place as a good thing in your brain of, oh, being with this person makes me happy, all of those memories now have to get re-encoded with loss. And people avoid the hell out of that because it's terrible. Mm -hmm. So it's not until we can accept that and deal with those feelings that we can Close that chapter and move on like you have to be done with something before you're ready to go on
0: Yeah, and I feel like that could that definitely affect finding a new relationship because obviously in this film Carl Nothing. There's nothing about him finding a new love or dating But I know they came out with a little short film about him going on a date So what challenges is Carl gonna face in terms of maybe pursuing another partnership or to try and find a new companion in his life? Because all those memories he made with Ellie were in a relationship, and so would he fu- would he suffer those consequences of trying to pursue dating to cause, co- it would cause him pain to be around another woman, to start dating another woman, or to try and put himself in these situations that he l- spent 70 years with Ellie as a couple, as a partner, so would becoming, trying to become a partner with someone else cause him pain as well. It certainly would cause him pain. Yes, yeah. it I mean, absolutely yeah.
3: would cause him pain and at that stage in life, it usually takes, this is something we uh, went over in some of our marriage and family classes and Hannah can probably talk to it better, but even in our marriage and family and lifespan classes is that as people age and you start looking for partners in different phases of your life, you have to remember that by the time you're 78 years old or you know, by the time you're in your 30s or 40s, the dating pool of single people that have no kids or people that haven't had a life before you is almost none, and you have to create space for that to be real and that to be okay to have a successful partnership. And I don't know if you want to build on that.
0: Uh, <laughs> uh,
3: Take that as a yes.
1: <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah. Go ahead, go Brittany. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. No, you I was going to say, I think what'll be hard. I mean, I guess my hope would be that his dating pool is around his age, <laughs> Carl's. And I haven't seen this sh- short, but that I can't imagine anyone who wouldn't be dating wouldn't have some sort of similar life experience. If you're single at that age, my assumption would be statistically that most of those people would be widows or widowers.
0: Mm-hmm. And so
1: I can't imagine there wouldn't be a lot of empathy and understanding around that. And I would imagine a part of dating in that pool of dating is what are our boundaries around talking about our maybe dead loved ones <laughs> like are do we give room in our relationship for discussing who we've lost our like husbands and wives that have passed um, how what does that look like? Maybe it's comforting for you them both to have permission to discuss as much as they want or need to about who they had before. Maybe there are some relationships at that age where they have a line to that, you know, like once we've kind of gotten serious, can we not bring up Ellie all the time? And so I don't know, it'd be a it'd be interesting to work with him and figure out like what he's looking for. And then yeah how ready he feels, which I think sometimes you don't know how ready you're going to feel till you're doing it. So sometimes when I do like that kind of adjustment work with people after a big change is one, do they feel not necessarily ready to jump back into the situation that came from before, like if it's dating, but if they feel ready to dip their toe in and be curious about how that will feel. So I try to remind people that it's not like an on and off switch, like you have to be like fully healed and like fully ready to like jump back in full force, which is why I think we can stay stuck. Is there this idea that either we're fully into dating again or whatever, or we're fully out? And then it's more just, can we think of ourselves kind of like an experiment where we try some things out? We have a hypothesis about what we can and can't handle. We dip our toe in, we learn from that information. I tell people sometimes it's like data gathering. And then in our sessions, you bring the data in and then we kind of just talk through how that felt. Did it feel too soon? Did it feel awful? Did it feel fun actually better than you expected? And then all that stuff in terms of I don't know, like dating at that age, it would be interesting to kind of figure that out with Carl. And I think that would be something too, where I took a gerontology class. So that was like a million years ago in grad school in terms of what it is like to be that age and to be still like, I mean, like a a sexual vivacious romantic Mm -hmm. person, you know, it's a different experience than when you're younger, but some ways it's not.
2: Yeah I think I think the most important part would really be what is Carl looking for and what is he hoping for because mm-hmm. to be looking for a partner I mean he wasn't looking for a partner when he was 8 either he's
1: never dated um,
2: before yeah so so really it would really be more about like what is he interested in now and what is his hope for now because I think when we think about people who are dating in this generation, I think it's a lot more about companionship and a lot more about finding somebody who has some similarities in terms of their experiences and having somebody to share and do things with. And so I feel like I feel like really making sure that it's that it's something that he that he has an awareness about what he's looking for, I think would be, would be helpful. And then and then just like Brittany said trying some stuff out, seeing what sticks, seeing what doesn't.
1: And you're gonna be uncomfortable. A big part of what I talk to clients about is you have to practice sitting in discomfort. It's not this thing where like, you just won't, it won't feel uncomfortable anymore and then you'll be ready to Uh. do it. It's more that, no, you have to be okay being a little bit uncomfortable, like a safe amount of uncomfortable. And my job can be to help figure out what that line is. And that can be like, you're gonna try something that feels possible doesn't feel too scary or too unsafe or too whatever. And then we'll see where that falls in terms of your window of tolerance. And and then also ideally we teach, like Ben was referenced a while back, that your body can be quite activated during these experiences. So I also always want to make sure that when I'm asking clients to take chances, cause that's what I'm doing, that they have a toolbox of coping skills, like mm-hmm. practical ones, like CBT skills, grounding techniques, mindfulness techniques that they can draw on and feel empowered by and feel confident in that they can rely on when they will become anxious. I tell clients, it's not like you, you probably will. You will be anxious. You yeah. may have this experience. It's not gonna be like all roses and you have skills and i hope that you can trust me your therapist that i think you can handle it even if it goes badly you can handle that you know it's a lot of not like, to run
0: a- not to run away from discomfort
1: yeah which we love to do and anxiety is always like if you feel uncomfortable that means it's bad so mm-hmm. go away and avoid it please please and thank you
3: well that's what that's what western society teaches us
1: that's true eastern society of, teaches us
3: Something, something much different. And I think it's really important to recognize that someone like Carl would have been taught
1: mm-hmm.
3: your feelings, your feelings. <laughs> Nobody cares about those.
1: I mean, like that Charles guy that he analyzes he's basically been hiding in the frigging nowhere forever because he doesn't deal with his feelings. He's made a bunch of dog robots. <laughs>
3: well, yeah. And like <laughs> of looking his at his ego. <laughs> well, lo- looking at this movie, we get one piece of information that tells us when this takes place and that is Is that yes no well (laughs) actually that's an interesting point
1: maybe we don't GPS
3: well no because never mind because he did have GPS so that's Mm -hmm. interesting because I was like oh maybe this movie is set a little further back because the cars are always old and -hmm. then they go to see Star Wars together
1: that's true but like the businessman in the beginning he's talking on a cell phone
0: that's true yeah, so, yeah, there's some tech. There's some tech in there. So I'm yeah. assuming
1: it this... is present day of the movie.
0: Yeah, I, I always assumed it was present, like contemporary when it was made. My guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I actually can connect it to Batman. Um, I can. Are you ready? Yeah, I want to say together. Let's do it One, together, guys. Two, two. Three three composer Michael Giacchino,
3: yes, <laughs> yes, yes, yes! Five. <laughs> Five. <laughs> Michael, G- Michael Giacchino. He just did the uh, the Batman score, he's he absolutely did. And the Batman score was fantastic. And uh, wait, we can connect this one more time on another level that I can be super super thrilling about. Mm-hmm. The same composer is also the first person not named John Williams to do a Star Wars movie,
0: oh, correct? Right. Yeah. yeah, he did Rogue One. Mm-hmm. Oh. He did. Which is the He's best awesome. of the new Star Wars movies, fight me. <laughs> <laughs> That's usually like the the Rogue One hive, they're that determined. Mm. Very determined. <laughs> no, there was
3: there were good ones all there also, but Rogue One is the best.
0: <laughs> He's a wonderful composer. He's one of my favorites And um when I like to con- say who maybe who the contemporary John Williams is. I think John I think Michael Giacchino... Is the guy they have such similarities in how they write, yeah, and their tendencies and their use of classical instrumentation? Uh, Giacchino doesn't use electronics um, very rarely, most of the time, he just sticks to the traditional orchestra, which is what John Williams has always done. So, uh, plus the complexity of his writings, um, it's very reminiscent of how John Williams composes music. And also the simplicity of an incredible theme for a character or for a movie. I mean, John Williams has made so many, even Harry Potter, even uh, obviously Star Wars. But Jaws then, is very simple. Jaws is very simple as well, but th- something simple that everyone can think of and connect to with this movie. They're both geniuses. And perhaps Indiana Jones, guys? Come yeah. on. Of course. Oh, yeah. uh, I mean, the course. Namesake. <laughs> I mean, we could go through the whole filmography of them both if you uh, want. There's uh, we right could, there. Right. <laughs> I see. You e. got both of them. Yeah, but,
3: yeah and even like the... This, The whimsicalness of his voice when we went to see indiana jones last week and i realized it it comes up for me when i when i hear it but i didn't realize how similar leia's theme and marians were
0: oh it's basically the same thing yeah yeah very similar Little, and then if you watch, versions. you can watch Home Alone to like Sorcerer's Stone music, it's like, you can watch mm-hmm. the same movies, vice versa. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you can, you can hear Leia, you can hear that same Leia, Marion theme in and E.T. here and there as well. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. He, you know, he's written a lot of music sometimes, it, you <laughs> There's know. There's only so many notes. because
1: you're wanting that John Williams stank on him, <laughs> Exactly. And that is that stank. And I'm, I love it every oh, yeah. time.
0: Hans Absolutely. Zimmer made time, like, four times with all different <laughs> movies, and I don't care, I it's it great. Pirates and Gladiator, same thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, gladiator is uh, Hans. Uh, what's his name? Hans Zimmer. Zimmer? Hans Zimmer. Yeah. So, oh, yeah. so he pirates this theme and then Gladiator, yeah. like the yeah. same kind of brass yeah. percussion.
3: Oh, yeah, it's basically the same song. Yeah. Yeah, I yeah.
0: want that, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. that
1: Doom score just screaming into my ears.
0: I love it. <laughs> I can't wait for Doom. <laughs> Doom was so good. Mm-hmm. I know, I cannot wait for the sequel. Do you have anything more you want to talk about from a therapist standpoint, you three?
1: Um, no, other than I think this movie speaks a lot to how powerful it can be for different generations to connect. Um, there, I can't remember the country this was in, but there was a, I think it was like a YouTube sort of like docu-series thing I watched, just like an episode of a merging of a, like a daycare kindergarten facility and a um, like elderly home and how for mental health, how good it was for the residents of the elder facility mm-hmm. to have these little kids around them that they, cause little kids basically had preschool amongst them. So when they were doing crafts, when they were having their like snacks and lunch, all this stuff they were doing together. They would read stories together. The kids would sit on their laps and like read books and how revitalizing it was for the older generation mm-hmm. to be like, feel love and to feel uh, mastery. I think that's what's also beautiful as well. And I think other cultures who do more respect their elderly and, and bring them into society, um, there is so much that can be gained from that of just the passed down, not just wisdom necessarily, but just having someone, having a place where you as an older person can demonstrate mastery to someone younger and feel worthwhile in that way and feel, yeah, just worthful. And also I think for the younger kids, these little kids, it just helps humanize older people. I think that they, we do a lot of, like we talked about home alone earlier, we do a lot of disservice of them being these like scary, Oogie boogie, like people that are like around us and we kind of try not to like be outwardly disdainful in our expression to little kids. We kind of just teach them to like watch their mouths, like watch their faces Mm -hmm. and, you know, maybe go up there and give grandma a hug and don't look scared, but there's not this more organic, connection. And I think in in that, like that example that I watched that thing on, what was so beautiful is it just let organic interactions happen between them. They weren't like pressuring the little kids to mingle with the older adults. It was more just, we're all here together and we're all having a good time and we're all chilling out and learning and being and letting those community connections form instead of totally isolating those two, community, two communities from each other and or forcing the connection, which is what we see more often, which is go give a grandma a kiss um, yeah. and don't look scared. So I think it just says a lot therapeutically about sort of like mentee mentor relationships, having more chosen family, you know, thinking more creatively about community, which I do think I'm hearing more and more of my clients talk about and I'm thinking about too as my own individual about how are we finding organic community around us and not and trying harder to not be isolated, which is really easy to do nowadays with Zoom and our phones and stuff. It's it's easy to not realize how isolated you are or mm-hmm. that how how far we have come from centralized community in our even our neighborhoods. So that's more like my therapist slash just person perspective on this movie.
0: All right. Well, how about we wrap up this crossover between popcorn psychology and Raiders of the Lost podcast, Brittany, Hannah, Ben, thanks so much for joining us. This was a total blast. Raiders listeners definitely go check out popcorn psychology and popcorn psychology. We would love for you to come check out our show Raiders of the Lost podcast as well. Do you all want to say anything, last words <laughs> to the fans and listeners?
1: No, just that you can find us wherever that you get podcasts, and you can find us on all social media, Popcorn Psychology. Um, not threads yet. haven't really experimented with threads yet. I've heard mixed reviews, so.
0: It's okay. I'm already giving up on it. <laughs> oh, that's what I've heard, pretty much. And then if you could
1: let our fan base kind of hear one more time where they can find you all.
0: Raiders of the Lost podcast on every single audio platform, as well as YouTube. We do video podcasting as well, TikTok, Instagram, Threads, as well, uh, Twitter. <laughs> Raiders of the Lost podcast, Letterboxd, Raiders of the Lost Pod. We are everywhere. We're so easy to find. Raiders, Raiders of the Lost Podcast is the easiest place. We have everything there on the homepage. And thanks so much for uh, checking us out. If you do, take care, everyone. Yeah. This episode was executive produced by our Chosen One patrons. Cody Moen, Andrew Hagen, Becca Keen, Benjamin Cook, Calvin Murphy Griggs, Nicholas Martin, Darian Singleton, Tyler McFly, Andrew Hagen. Our Chosen One patrons are our biggest supporters. Thank you so much. Raiders of the Lost podcast is a Mirror Image production. Sound mixing done by Jacob Cosler. Opening music by Chase Jackson.